Section 18 of Volume 1b of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. By David Hume, Volume One B, Section Eighteen, Chapter Fourteen, Part Two. In this situation, Edward had found it necessary to grant a truce to Scotland, and Robert successfully employed the interval in consolidating his power and introducing order into the civil government, disjointed by a long continuance of wars and factions. The interval was very short. The truce ill-observed on both sides, was at last openly violated, and war recommenced with greater fury than ever. Robert, not content with defending himself, had made successful inroads into England, subsisted his needy followers by the plunder of that country, and taught them to despise the military genius of a people who had long been the object of their terror. Edward at last, roused from his lethargy, and had marched an army into Scotland, and Robert, determined not to risk too much against an enemy so much superior, retired again into the mountains. The king advanced beyond Edinburgh, but being destitute of provisions, and being ill-supported by the English nobility, who were then employed in framing their ordinances, he was soon obliged to retreat, without gaining any advantage over the enemy. But the appearing union of all the parties in England, after the death of Gavaston, seemed to restore that kingdom to its native force, opened again the prospect of reducing Scotland, and promised a happy conclusion to a war in which both the interests and passions of the nation were so deeply engaged. Edward assembled forces from all quarters, with a view of finishing at one blow this important enterprise. He summoned the most warlike of his vassals from Gascony. He enlisted troops from Flanders and other foreign countries. He invited over great numbers of the disorderly Irish, as to a certain prey. He joined to them a body of the Welsh, who were actuated by like motives. And, assembling the whole military force of England, he marched to the frontiers, with an army which, according to the Scotch writers, amounted to a hundred thousand men. The army collected by Robert exceeded not thirty thousand combatants, but being composed of men who had distinguished themselves by many acts of valor, who were rendered desperate by their situation, and who were inured to all the varieties of fortune, they might justly, under such a leader, be deemed formidable to the most numerous and best appointed armies. The castle of Stirling, which, with Berwick, was the only fortress in Scotland that remained in the hands of the English, had long been besieged by Edward Bruce. Philip de Mowbray, the governor, after an obstinate defence, was at last obliged to capitulate, and to promise that if, before a certain day, which was now approaching, he were not relieved, he would open his gates to the enemy. Robert, therefore, sensible that there was the ground on which he must expect the English, 
chose the field of battle with all the skill and prudence imaginable, and made the necessary preparations for their reception. He posted himself at Bannockburn, about two miles from Stirling, where he had a hill on his right flank and a morass on his left, and not content with having taken these precautions, to prevent his being surrounded by the more numerous army of the English, he foresaw the superior strength of the enemy in cavalry, and made provision against it. Having a rivulet in front, he commanded deep pits to be dug along its banks, and sharp stakes to be planted in them, and he ordered the whole to be carefully covered over with turf. The English arrived in sight on the evening, and a bloody conflict immediately ensued between two bodies of cavalry, where Robert, who was at the head of the Scots, engaged in single combat with Henry de Bohun, a gentleman of the family of Hereford, and at one stroke cleft his adversary to the chin with a battle-axe, in sight of the two armies. The English horse fled with precipitation to their main body. The Scots, encouraged by this favourable event, unglorying in the valour of their prince, prognosticated a happy issue to the combat on the ensuing day. The English, confident in their numbers, and elated with former successes, launched for an opportunity of revenge, and the night, though extremely short in that season and in that climate, appeared tedious to the impatience of the several combatants. Early in the morning, Edward drew out his army and advanced towards the Scots. The Earl of Gloucester, his nephew, who commanded the left wing of the cavalry, impelled by the ardour of youth, rushed on to the attack without precaution, and fell amongst the covered pits, which had been prepared by Bruce for the reception of the enemy. This body of horse was disordered. Gloucester himself was overthrown and slain. Sir James Douglas, who commanded the Scottish cavalry, gave the enemy no leisure to rally, but pushed them off the field with considerable loss, and pursued them in sight of their whole line of infantry. While the English army were alarmed with this unfortunate beginning of the action, which commonly proves decisive, they observed an army on the heights towards the left, which seemed to be marching leisurely in order to surround them, and they were distracted by their multiplied fears. This was a number of wagoneers and sumter boys, whom Robert had collected, and having supplied them with military standards, gave them the appearance at a distance of a formidable body. The stratagem took effect. A panic seized the English. They threw down their arms and fled. They were pursued with great slaughter for the space of ninety miles, till they reached Berwick, and the Scots, besides an inestimable booty, took many persons of quality prisoners, and above four hundred gentlemen, whom Robert treated with great humanity, and whose ransom was a new accession of wealth to the victorious army. The king himself narrowly escaped by taking shelter in Dunbar, whose gates were opened to him by the Earl of March, and he thence passed by sea to Berwick. Such was the great and decisive battle of Bannockburn, which secured the independence of Scotland, fixed Bruce on the throne of that kingdom, and may be deemed the greatest overthrow that the English nation, since the conquest, has ever received. 
the number of slain on those occasions is always uncertain, and is commonly much magnified by the victors. But this defeat made a deep impression on the mind of the English, and it was remarked that, for some years, the superiority of numbers could encourage them to keep the field against the Scots. Robert, in order to avail himself of his present success, entered England and ravaged all the northern counties without opposition. He besieged Carlisle, but that place was saved by the valour of Sir Andrew Harkla, the governor. He was more successful against Berwick, which he took by assault, and this prince, elated by his continued prosperity, now entertained hopes of making the most important conquests on the English. He sent over his brother Edward, with an army of six thousand men, into Ireland, and that nobleman assumed the title of king of that island. He himself followed soon after with more numerous forces. The horrible and absurd oppressions which the Irish suffered under the English government made them at first fly to the standard of the Scots, whom they regarded as their deliverers. But a grievous famine, which at that time desolated both Ireland and Britain, reduced the Scottish army to the greatest extremities, and Robert was obliged to return, with his forces much diminished, into his own country. His brother, after having experienced a variety of fortune, was defeated and slain near Dundalk by the English, commanded by Lord Birmingham, and these projects, too extensive for the force of the Scottish nation, thus vanished into smoke. Edward, besides suffering those disasters from the invasion of the Scots and the insurrection of the Irish, was also infested with the rebellion in Wales, and above all, by the factions of his own nobility, who took advantage of the public calamities, insulted his fallen fortunes, and endeavoured to establish their own independence on the ruins of the throne. Lancaster and the barons of his party, who had declined attending him on his Scottish expedition, no sooner saw him return with disgrace than they insisted on the renewal of their ordinances, which, they still pretended, had validity, and the king's unhappy situation obliged him to submit to their demands. The ministry was new modelled by the direction of Lancaster. That prince was placed at the head of the council. It was declared that all the offices should be filled, from time to time, by the votes of Parliament, or rather by the will of the great barons. And the nation, under this new model of government, endeavoured to put itself in a better posture of defence against the Scots. But the factious nobles were far from being terrified with the progress of these public enemies. On the contrary, they founded the hopes of their own future grandeur on the weakness and distresses of the crown. Lancaster himself was suspected, with great appearance of reason, of holding a secret correspondence with the King of Scots. And though he was entrusted with the command of the English armies, he took care that every enterprise should be disappointed, and every plan of operations prove unsuccessful. All the European kingdoms, especially that of England, were at this time unacquainted with the office of a prime minister, so well understood at present in all regular monarchies 
and the people could form no conception of a man who, though still in the rank of a subject, possessed all the power of a sovereign, eased the prince of the burden of affairs, supplied his want of experience or capacity, and maintained all the rights of the crown, without degrading the greatest nobles by their submission to his temporary authority. Edward was plainly by nature unfit to hold himself the reins of government. He had no vices, but was unhappy in a total incapacity for serious business. He was sensible of his own defects, and necessarily sought to be governed, yet every favorite whom he successively chose was regarded as a fellow-subject exalted above his rank and station. He was the object of envy to the great nobility. His character and conduct were decried with the people. His authority over the king and kingdom was considered as a usurpation, and unless the prince had embraced the dangerous expedient of devolving his power on the Earl of Lancaster, or some mighty baron, whose family interest was so extensive as to be able alone to maintain his influence, he could expect no peace or tranquillity upon the throne. The king's chief favorite, after the death of Gavaston, was Hugh Le Despenser, or Spencer, a young man of English birth, of high rank, and of noble family. He possessed all the exterior accomplishments of person and address, which were fitted to engage the weak mind of Edward, but was destitute of that moderation and prudence which might have qualified him to mitigate the envy of the great, and conduct him through all the perils of that dangerous station to which he was advanced. His father, who was of the same name, and who, by means of his son, had also attained great influence over the king, was a nobleman, venerable for his years, respected, through all his past life of wisdom, valour, and integrity, and well fitted by his talents and experience, could affairs have admitted of any temperament, to have supplied the defects, both of the king and of his minion. But no sooner was Edward's attachment declared for young Spencer, than the turbulent Lancaster, and most of the great barons, regarded him as their rival, made him the object of their animosity, and formed violent plans for his ruin. They first declared their discontent by withdrawing from Parliament, and it was not long ere they found a pretense for proceeding to greater extremities against him. The king, who set no limits to his bounty towards his minions, had married the younger Spencer to his niece, one of the coheres of the Earl of Gloucester, slain at Bannockburn, the favourite by his succession to that opulent family, had inherited great possessions in the marches of Wales, and being desirous of extending still farther his influence in those quarters, he is accused of having committed injustice on the barons of Audley and Amori, who had also married two sisters of the same family. There was likewise a baron in that neighbourhood called William de Brose, Lord of Gower, who had made a settlement of this estate on John de Mowbray, his son-in-law, and in case of failure of that nobleman and his issue, had substituted the Earl of Hereford in the succession to the barony of Gower. Mowbray, on the decease of his father-in-law, entered immediately in possession of the estate, 
without the formality of taking livery and seizing from the crown. But Spencer, who coveted that barony, persuaded the king to put in execution the rigor of the feudal law, to seize Gower as acceded to the crown, and to confer it upon him. This transaction, which was the proper subject of a lawsuit, immediately excited a civil war in the kingdom. The earls of Lancaster and Hereford flew to arms. Odell and Amory joined them with all their forces. The two, Rogers de Mortimer and Roger de Clifford, with many others, disgusted for private reasons at the Spencers, brought a considerable accession to the party, and their army being now formidable, they sent a message to the king, requiring him immediately to dismiss or confine the younger Spencer, and menacing him, in case of refusal, with renouncing their allegiance to him, and taking revenge on that minister by their own authority. They scarcely waited for an answer, but immediately fell upon the lands of young Spencer, which they pillaged and destroyed, murdered his servants, drove off his cattle, and burned his houses. They thence proceeded to commit like devastations on the estates of Spencer the father, whose character they had hitherto seemed to respect. And having drawn and signed a formal association among themselves, they marched to London with all their forces, stationed themselves in the neighborhood of that city, and demanded of the king the banishment of both the Spencers. These noblemen were then absent, the father abroad, the son at sea, and both of them employed in different commissions. The king therefore replied that his coronation oath, by which he was bound to observe the laws, restrained him from giving his assent to so illegal a demand, or condemning noblemen who were accused of no crime, nor had any opportunity afforded them of making answer. Equity and reason were but a feeble opposition to men who had arms in their hands, and who, being already involved in guilt, saw no safety but in success and victory. They entered London with their troops, and giving it to the Parliament, which was then sitting, a charge against the Spencers, of which they attempted not to prove one article. They procured, by menaces and violence, a sentence of attainder, and perpetual exile against these ministers. This sentence was voted by the lay barons alone, for the commons, though no an estate in Parliament, were yet of so little consideration, then their assent was not demanded, and even the votes of the prelates were neglected amidst the present disorders. The only symptom which these turbulent barons gave of their regard to law was their requiring from the king and indemnity for their illegal proceedings, after which they disbanded their army, and separated in security, as they imagined, to their several castles. This act of violence, in which the king was obliged to acquiesce, rendered his person and his authority so contemptible, that every one thought himself entitled to treat him with neglect. The queen, having occasion soon after to pass by the castle of Leeds in Kent, which belonged to the Lord Badlesmere, desired a night's lodging, but was refused admittance, and some of her attendants, who presented themselves at the gate, were killed. The insult upon this princess, who had always endeavoured to live on good terms with the barons, 
and who joined them heartily in their hatred of the young Spencer, was an action which nobody pretended to justify, and the king thought that he might, without giving General Umbridge, assemble an army and take vengeance on the offender. No one came to the assistance of Badlesmere, and Edward prevailed. But having now some forces on foot, and having concerted measures with his friends throughout England, he ventured to take off the mask, to attack all his enemies, and to recall the two Spencers, whose sentence he declared illegal, unjust, contrary to the tenor of the Great Charter, passed without the assent of the prelates, and extorted by violence from him and the estate of barons. Still the commons were not mentioned by either party. The king had now got the start of the barons, an advantage which in those times was commonly decisive, and he hastened with his army to the marches of Wales, the chief seat of the power of his enemies, whom he found totally unprepared for resistance. Many of the barons in those parts endeavoured to appease him by submission. Their castles were seized, and their persons committed to custody. But Lancaster, in order to prevent the total ruin of his party, summoned together his vassals and retainers, declared his alliance with Scotland, which had long been suspected, received the promise of a reinforcement from that country, under the command of Randolph, Earl of Mary, and Sir James Douglas, and being joined by the Earl of Hereford, advanced with all his forces against the king, who had collected an army of thirty thousand men, and was superior to his enemies. Lancaster posted himself at Burton upon Trent, and endeavoured to defend the passages of the river. But being disappointed in that plan of operations, this prince, who had no military genius, and whose personal courage was even suspected, fled with his army to the north, in expectation of being there joined by his Scottish allies. He was pursued by the king, and his army diminished daily, till he came to Boroughbridge, where he found Sir Andrew Harkla posted, with some forces on the opposite side of the river, and ready to dispute the passage with him. He was repulsed in an attempt which he made to force his way. The Earl of Hereford was killed, the whole army of the rebels was disconcerted, Lancaster himself was become incapable of taking any measures, either for flight or defence, and he was seized without resistance by Harkla, and conducted to the king. In those violent times the laws were so much neglected on both sides, that even where they might, without any sensible inconvenience, have been observed, the conquerors deemed it unnecessary to pay any regard to them. Lancaster, who was guilty of open rebellion, and was taken in arms against his sovereign, instead of being tried by the laws of his country, which pronounced the sentence of death against him, was condemned by a court-martial, and led to execution. Edward, however, little vindictive in his natural temper, here indulged his revenge, and employed against the prisoner the same indignities which had been exercised by his orders against Gavaston. He was clothed in a mean attire, placed on a lean jade without a bridle, a hood was put on his head, and in this posture, 
attended by the acclamations of the people, this prince was conducted to an eminence near Pomfret, one of his own castles, and there beheaded. End of section 18, chapter 14, part 2